right. Well, uh, it's good to have uh, my full family back in church this week. Last week, we had a bit of a health crisis. Uh, everybody in my family but Priscilla, she was taking care of all of us, so God spared her, I guess. Everybody came down with some sort of flu, virus, fever, nasty thing, and so uh, we, only half of us were here last week, and Priscilla was at home with Avia, but we are fully back and healthy and excited to be in the house of God with you today. Amen? Uh, well, we're in part two of our message series, Table Manners, and last week I showed you how Jesus broke a lot of the customs and table manners of his day during his ministry here on earth. And one of the stories we looked at was when Jesus didn't go through the, uh, the ceremonial hand washing uh, that uh, before a meal that he ate in the home of a Pharisee. And that Pharisee was shocked and disturbed that Jesus didn't do this and was clearly displeased with him, even though this ceremonial hand washing, it was not a law of Moses. It was actually a self-imposed rule by the Pharisees that they held over the people. And I was trying to get you to understand, and I think Jesus was trying to get us to understand that our Lord and Savior is not an unsanitary fellow, okay? Uh, but was trying to get us to see that our tables, having our tables relationally correct is far more important than having our tables ceremonially correct. And so that's what he was trying to show us in that story and many other stories where Jesus broke the table manners and customs of his day. Now, that doesn't mean we compromise our standards and never stand up for truth and excuse sin. That's not what I'm talking about. But it does mean that when we do these things, we do these things through relationship rather by force. And so today, we're going to be in a very famous story in the Gospels. We're going to be in a story that if you uh, have attended church for any period of time, uh, you've probably heard a, heard a message preached on this. Uh, but we're going to be in John chapter number 13, and I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to start with verse 1. And it says this, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would anoint the word anoint my lips and help me to say and communicate everything you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is a very significant moment in the Bible because uh, this is the last time that Jesus and his disciples sit down together at a table to eat a meal together before the crucifixion. The cross was only one day away at this point. And while Jesus knew what was coming, his disciples certainly did not understand or know or fathom what was about to take place in the next few hours. In fact, we know from Luke's gospel that the disciples were arguing with each other uh, during this meal about who would be the greatest among them while they were eating and connecting with each other over the Last Supper. Could you imagine being a fly on the wall during all of this, where Peter was probably like, 
well, I'm going to be the greatest for sure because how many of you have walked on water, right? And then John probably replied back, well, when we meet together and, and we, we, we hang out together, Jesus lets me lay down my head on his chest, so I'm, of course, going to be the greatest. And I'm sure that all of the disciples had something to add to the competition as they were saying, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And with this backdrop, watch what happens next. Verse number six of John 13. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And, the, and you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. You know, most people, including myself, use this story to teach on how leaders should treat their followers, right? And how we should be servant leaders. But Jesus washed his disciples' feet as an example of how they were to treat one another. Verse 14, he wasn't teaching them how a leader should serve his followers. He was teaching them how they should treat and treat one another. That means that none of us are excluded from this. Okay? And I don't know about you, but I don't like feet. <laughs> I don't like feet. For some reason, feet creep me out. Like... I don't, outside of my wife and my kids, I don't like anybody's feet touching me. It just, uh, it just makes me feel exactly like that when anybody's feet touch any part of my body whatsoever. And <laughs> some of y'all can relate to me. During the time that Jesus and his disciples lived, what do you think a lot of the roads were made out of? Dirt. It was a very dusty region to begin with. And then the streets were made of dirt. And what kind of foot game do you think they rocked? Okay, can we put up the next slide here? They, nobody was rocking Jordans or Yeezys or Nike Airs or Chucks back then. Okay, let's put on the next slide. This is what everybody was, that's an actual picture of Jesus right there. And his feet, I'm just kidding. But everybody walked around with open-toed sandals. And so their feet got all sorts of dirty and nasty as they were walking from place 
to play. They also did not, I don't know if you know this, they didn't have cars. They didn't have Ubers or Lyfts. Uh, they basically walked everywhere, rode a donkey or a horse from place to place, and their feet got dirty. On top of that, in that society at that time, feet washing was reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Okay? And the disciples were horrified as their, as their rabbi, he, he, he took off his robe and then he got a basin and he got his Poland spring bottled water and, and, and he poured that water in the basin. And, and, and they were like, what in the world is going on? And, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And, 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 and then he started going from disciple to disciple and washing their dirty, nasty, dusty, grimy, all sorts of stuff on them. And he started washing their feet. Each disciple, he started washing their feet. And, and, and the disciples were, I'm sure, absolutely shocked and horrified at the sight of their rabbi, at the sight of their master, as the, at the sight of their Lord doing this menial, low task to them. That's why Peter was trying to stop Jesus from washing his feet. And he, in fact, he says, you will never, ever wash my feet. And he did not relent until Jesus said, you can't be a part of me if I don't wash your feet. And then he was like, well, wash my face and my head and everything then. <laughs> And Jesus said, no, just your feet, buddy. Honestly, it was beneath Jesus to do this for his disciples. So we see here again Jesus breaking the table manners by washing his disciples' feet because the master would never do something like this for his apprentices. Okay, it was against the customs of the day. It was a very... It's not like America where we're just so rebellious towards authority and all of those things. This was a very honoring society. And so in that time, in that culture, a master would never wash the feet of his apprentices. On top of that, this isn't just any master. This is the son of God. This is the prince of peace. This is the king of kings washing the feet of his followers. If we want community the way Jesus taught his disciples to have community, we must break some table manners yeah. as well. Yeah. And so what Jesus teaches us through this story around the table is this. In order to have the community the way God wants us to have community this year, you must disrobe. Let, let, let's, let's, uh, let's all do it together. I'm just kidding. You must disrobe. We ain't that kind of church. You must disrobe. In verse 4 of this passage, it says that before Jesus washed any of his disciples' feet, he first disrobed. And the reason Jesus disrobed is because his outer garments would have impeded what he was trying to do. Come on, that'll preach right there. Okay, there are some things that you're carrying around in here that are going to impede our community if you don't disrobe from them. Okay, there's some things that you have brought in here from whatever you're going through in your own life that if you don't disrobe from those things, it's going to affect and disrupt 
what God is doing in this community. There might be some past hurts that you need to disrobe from, or you won't be able to trust anyone in this church and go deep with them. Uh, There might be some deep-seated prejudice in your heart that you may need to disrobe from that's keeping you from really getting to know someone else in this church. There might be some current offenses that you need to disrobe from that's keeping you from a deeper relationship with someone in our church. It's time to disrobe. Jesus, before he washed the disciples' feet, he had to disrobe. And Jesus is perfect. So you know you and I need to disrobe from some things in our lives. Let me give you a few things on disrobing. Excuse me, let me get a drink of water first. Few things on disrobing. A, disrobing is an act of intimacy. Disrobing is an act of intimacy. Jesus was down to his last few hours with his disciples. And even though if you were you and I were in the same situation as Jesus, uh, we would be absorbed in ourselves, right? Uh, Jesus was thinking about his disciples this entire time. Uh, But before Jesus could do the act of washing his disciples' feet, he had to first disrobe. For some of you, you are not experiencing the fullness of our church community because you need to let your guard down. You've got too many guards up and it's keeping you from truly experiencing the fullness of community here at our church church. You got too many guards up. God wants the Grace Place NYC community to be an intimate community. That does not mean he wants us to be an exclusive community, but he wants us to be an intimate community. And when I say intimate community, what I mean by that is that God wants us to be a close-knit community where we have each other's backs, where you know that I have your back and I know that you have my back. You might get on my last nerves, but if push comes to shove, you've got my back. If push comes to shove, I can call on you and depend on you to come through, and you can call on me and depend on me to come through for you. This kind of community only happens when each of us are willing to let our guards down. Okay, Letting our guards down might mean us disrobing from our pride. Okay, if you view relationships as a standard to upkeep, you are not going to be very happy in our church because we believe in a diversity of relationships and we embrace our differences. We don't separate because of our differences. We don't exclude ourselves because of our differences, but we but but we uh, embrace our differences. And I love what's different about you. Okay. And, and I want our community to be a community that we embrace and love each other for our differences. We don't separate from each other because of our differences. Jesus washing the disciples' feet was a complete act of humility, wasn't it? He was under zero obligation to do that for his disciples. Zero obligations, which means Jesus did not have an ego. Okay? It takes major humility to live in Christian community with imperfect human beings. And and that's why Jesus said that he was doing this for them to show them 
how to treat one another and act towards one another moving forward. Because he, he was trying to tell them, I'm not going to be here that much longer. But because I'm not going to be here that much longer, I want to show you by example how I want you to treat one another. See, church, when the main goal of our family or a church or an organization is to compete to see who can outserve who, man, that church, that family, that organization becomes an unstoppable force. When, when we're not competing to who gets the credit, but we're competing to, to, to outserve one another, outlove one another, man, we become an absolutely unstoppable force. Humility opens the door for intimacy. I don't know about you, but someone who is truly humble makes me want to get to know them more. And someone that's full of themselves, just completely arrogant and prideful, man, I don't want to be around people like that. Humility opens the door for intimacy. Something else on disrobing is disrobing is an act of transparency. Disrobing is an act of transparency. One of the definitions of the word transparent is permitting light to pass through you. Let me ask you a question. Have you allowed the light of the world to pass through you? Can other people see the light of the gospel through you? Can other people see that light in you? Can other people see something different about you because you have encountered the living God? Are you a transparent person? Uh, can people see right through you? Because that's what being transparent means. And, uh, and a lot of times that, that question uh, or, or that saying, being able to be seen right through, it, it's, it's taken in a negative light. But in Christian community, we need to be a people where we can see right through each other. Why? Because we're not hiding anything from one another. Because we're an open book towards one another. Because we trust one another. And we know that we have each other's back. And so in Christian community, being able to see right through each other is actually a good thing. It's being transparent with one another. Throughout this entire night, Jesus is being transparent with his disciples, telling them over and over that he will only be with them a little while longer and that someone among them was going to betray him. And this all started by him first disrobing in order to wash their feet. James 5.16 says this, Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. The Bible says that it's not enough just to confess your sins to God. We understand that only God can forgive us and set us free and make us right with God. But James here says we need to confess our sins one to another. When was the last time you confessed a sin to someone in this church? When was the last time you opened up to someone in this church about what you are struggling with? Because... Christian community is about being a safe place for us to be able to do that. If you can't do that in your church, where on earth are you going to be able to do that? 
and I'm preaching to myself. Yeah. Right? If we, can't, if we can't confess sins to one another and say, can you pray for me? I'm struggling here. Then where on earth are we going to be able to do that at? When was the last time you confessed a sin to someone in this church? One of the most powerful things Christian community can offer is an accountability partner. That's one of the most powerful things that, that Christian community can offer you. An accountability partner or partners are people in your life whom you are transparent with about a sin that you're struggling with or, or, or an issue that you're vulnerable in. And, and you have given them permission to pray for you and to check on you in that specific area. That's what an accountability partner is. Okay, It's not a forced thing. It's something that you uh, come up with between you and that other person on your own because you, you, you want to take advantage of that part of Christian community. You know, there was a time in my life before I got married where I was very vulnerable to pornography. And so I had, uh, I had an accountability partner in my life, and I gave him permission. I said, I said, I want you to pray for me, and I want you to ask me how I'm doing. And, and I want you to hold me accountable to that because I am committed to a life of purity. I'm, I'm committed to uh, uh, being uh, sexually moral. And so I need help in that area because I'm weak and vulnerable in that. And so uh, me and, and another guy, we, we became accountability partners. And so I gave him permission to speak into my life. He gave me permission to speak into his life. And man, it, it, that relationship right there helped me from so many, uh, from going down a very dark, dark path. Okay. Um, these kinds of relationships found in Christian community can legitimately keep you from going down a road of addiction that can destroy your life, that can destroy your marriage, that can destroy relationships, all because you, you walked in humility and you asked somebody to, to speak into your life. <clears throat> Next thing about disrobing is, disrobing is an act of vulnerability. Disrobing is an act of vulnerability. Think about how vulnerable Jesus was in that moment as he was washing his disciples' feet. Outer garments stripped off, just a towel around his waist and some dirty feet. Everyone in that room staring at him, wondering what he was about to do. You ever been in a room where you don't know anybody and you walk in and everybody's looking at you? Man, there is not many more uh, uh, vulnerable uh, places that you can be in life when you walk into a room, everybody's head turns, they're looking at you, and you're just like, yeah, that's how you feel on the inside. Like, you just feel exposed. Jesus, taking off his robe, putting on that towel, filling up that basin with water. Everybody's staring at him like, what, what, what's happening? What's going on? And I don't want to forget to mention that he only had a few hours remaining in his life at this point as well. He was about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends on top of all of this. Talk about vulnerability. Jesus put himself out there. Why is vulnerability so important when it comes to community? It's because you can't have a deep relationship without it. 
You just can't have a, rela a relationship of any substance without vulnerability from both parties. You can't have a relationship of substance without it. Meaningful relationships are ones that involve a level of vulnerability from both sides. And vulnerability simply means putting yourself out there with the possibility of getting hurt. That's what being vulnerable means. And here's what I know about you. The most important people in your life are also the ones that can hurt you the deepest, right? Uh, for example, if, if I was on the subway going somewhere and some random person came up to me and looked me in the, in the eye and he was like, you suck at life, okay? <laughs> I would probably honestly laugh it off and say, that person's probably nutso. <clears throat> but if I got home, okay, <laughs> And I was sitting on the couch, and my wife came up to me, and she got right in my face. She looked me in the eyes, and she said, Stephen, you just suck at life. Let me tell you something. That would hurt a little bit more. If my wife tells me I suck at life, the one that's supposed to love me till death do us part, the, the, the one that actually chose me by, by her own free will, to marry me and be with me and have babies with me. If she looked me in the face and said, you suck at life, man, that would hurt. That would devastate me. That would give me a complex, okay? That, that, that my self-image would get all shattered and jacked up if my wife did that to me. Why? Because I, I, I am vulnerable in my relationship with her. Because my relationship with her goes deep. Because my relationship with her is... is uh, uh, has substance because my relationship with her, uh, we've been through some things together. We've had some up and down experiences together. We've been through life together. And so what she thinks about me means something because I have given her the keys to my heart and I've given her freely the ability to hurt me. Yeah. And we hurt each other sometimes. We say things to one another that are hurtful. She's never told me I suck at life, thank God. But, but, but it's because I've given her permission and I've put myself out there in my relationship with her to where she can hurt me. And when someone's been hurt before, when they were vulnerable in a friendship, if, if we don't get healed, if we don't get restored from that hurt, that pain, we will be afraid to put ourselves out there again. Because yes. we're like, I didn't like how that felt, and so I, I'm going to put my guards up, I'm going to put my defense mechanisms up, and I'm not going to put myself out there to get hurt again because I don't like how it feels. Yeah. Uh, maybe some of you in here aren't going all in on the church because you were hurt by the last church you went all in on. And so you come up in here with all sorts of defense mechanisms, all sorts of guards up, all sorts of preconceived ideas, and, 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 and it's keeping you from going all in. You know what the craziest thing about this story is? And I, I've read it hundreds of times, but I didn't pay attention to it until this time when I was uh, preparing the sermon. Maybe you've noticed it. Uh, it. It's amazing how you'll read a story so many different times and, and God will give you a different perspective on it. 
Um, the, the, the craziest thing about the story, uh, as I read it this time, w- was, was this. I, I realized that Jesus washed Judas's feet. Mm-hmm. Judas was there. And Jesus washed his betrayer's feet. In fact, right after Jesus washed uh, his disciples' feet, he basically tells Judas, Judas, now you go do what you got to do. Wow. That's, that, that's crazy. The, the fact that Jesus would wash Judas' feet. You know this, but I'm going to remind you anyway. Jesus was not a robot. Okay? Jesus was God, but he laid aside those privileges. And so Jesus experienced emotion like you and I experienced emotion. He experienced joy and he experienced uh, fear and he experienced all of the emotions that you and I experience. And think about how vulnerable Jesus must have felt washing his betrayer's feet. Can you imagine? Jesus knew what Judas was about to do to him, yet he still got down on his knees and still uh, dipped his towel in that water. He was washing uh, Judas's feet in that intimate, vulnerable, transparent moment. And he looked up in the eyes of his betrayer and he cleaned and served his betrayer. Can you imagine what Jesus was feeling in that moment? If I could have the worship team come up. Think about how vulnerable Jesus must have felt washing Judas's feet in that moment. Think about how violated Jesus must have felt as he was washing his betrayer's feet. And in a moment, his disciple that he poured into for three and a half years was going to sell his soul out for 30 pieces of silver. Think about how hurt he must have been knowing what was going to happen next. Think about how Jesus must have felt washing Judas's feet in that moment. The disciples had no idea, no clue what was going on. It was just Jesus and Judas in that moment. Yet Jesus didn't say. Yet Jesus could have told Judas to go at any moment, but he waited until after he washed his feet. He was trying to teach us something. Love your enemies. Love those who hate you and persecute you. Love those who want to do harm to your reputation. Love those who are trying to assassinate your dreams. Love those people that rub you the wrong way. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us in that moment. Because let me tell you something. If you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have a Judas in your life. And you might have more than one. 
You're going to have people in your life who exploit your vulnerabilities instead of covering them. You're going to have people in your life who betray your trust. You're going to have people in your life who stab you in the back. You thought they were for you, and they stab you in the back, and they show you their true colors. You're going to have people in your life that don't come through for you when you need them the most. And a lot of times it's the ones that you expect the most from that this happens to you with. I've had lots of people tell me, Pastor, anything you need from me, I'm here. Whatever you need. And a few months later, a few days later, even a few hours later, oh, God called me to another church, or you never, just never see them again. Like, wow, they, they committed their whole life to me. They gave me their social security number and everything. I haven't seen them again. That's just the reality of relationships. If you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have people that disappoint you. You're going to have people that let you down. Here's what I know. The same reason vulnerability is hard is the same reason it's so powerful. Because you are giving up control and giving someone else the power to hurt you. But you're also giving up control and giving someone else the power to love you. The power to encourage you. The power to be there for you. The power to bring healing into your life. The power to, to speak hope into your life. The power to influence you to follow your dreams and to follow your passions and to follow your desires. So just like there's an opportunity for people to hurt you, there's also a great opportunity and potential for people to bring life into you. And that's why vulnerability and risking it, that's why it's so important and powerful. One more thing and we'll be finished. Why could Jesus do such a humbling, menial, low thing like washing the feet of his disciples? How could he do something like this? You know, it's one thing to hear a sermon like this and get emotionally stirred, but how can we actually serve our brothers and sisters and walk this word out bearing one another's burdens and preferring one another over each other? Well, the answer is found in the verse right before Jesus disrobed in John 13, 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. See, his identity was not in the task regardless of how menial or how significant it was. Jesus' identity was not wrapped up in that. He didn't see himself as just a menial servant because his identity was in what his father said about him and what his father had given him. His father had given him authority. It says that Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. When our identity is wrapped up in the father, it doesn't matter what we do. 
Because no matter what we do, whether we wash dirty feet or, or, or we're, we, we sit at a meal with a president and king, our identity is not found in that. It's found in the Father. And that's why Jesus was able to do that. Because he knew he came from God and he was going to return to God. And, and, and as, as sons and daughters, we have that same promise. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are children of the King. And so we can walk with that same confidence. We can walk with that same identity. We can walk with that same authority. But if our identity is not placed in our Heavenly Father, we will not be able to serve one another in this way because we'll be too worried about what we look like. Yeah. What am I going to look like if I do this for them? I'm the, I'm the pastor. Or what, am I gonna, what are they going to think? Or maybe we'll have the wrong motives. Maybe what we do will be out of a desire to get praised. When our identity is not in the Father, that can happen. Or maybe we'll be crippled by fear, fear of what people think about us. And we don't act in what we know we're supposed to do because our identity has been misplaced in the wrong thing. But in that moment, Jesus didn't care about any praise and he was not crippled in fear of what anybody would think of him because his identity was in what his father had given him and who he was in relation to his father. So church, that's how we're going to walk and live and move in this community that God wants us to walk in. Our identity must be in the father. That's the only way we'll be able to disrobe of these things is if our identity is not placed in what we're doing. But because our identity is placed in the Father, we can serve one another. Because Jesus did this as an example, not for master-apprentice master relationships, but for the, how the disciples should treat one another. Which is so amazing because that means none of us None of us, none of us are excluded from this. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.